0: Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very empowering show coming right up with special guest, Deb Brandon. And she's here today to share with us her two books, Threads Around the World, and But My Brain Had Other Ideas. Now, Deb is a weaver, respected textile artist, and fiber enthusiast and writer. She's been an active volunteer with Weave A Real Place, including serving multiple terms as a board member, as well as writing the long-time-running Textile Techniques from Around the World column. Deb is a popular speaker on textiles and other topics. She's an avid traveler and has competed nationally and internationally in dragon boating, and has been a professor in the Mathematical Science Department at Carnegie Mellon University. So let's welcome to the show, Deb Brandon. Oh, thank you very much.
1: What a pleasure it is to have you here, and my goodness, your book is pretty in-depth. It's got such great, you know, it's got great pictures, it's got a lot of information, and so I have to ask, like, what inspired you to write this book? Um, I've Since
2: I was a child, I've been interested in ethnic textiles, and um, after I joined uh, an organization, Called Warp W A R P, which is an acronym for Weave a Real Peace, I got even more interested. Uh, this is a group of uh, people who, whose mission is to improve the quality of life of textiles art- textile artisans in need around the world, and and uh, I. A year after I joined, I started writing articles for the quarterly newsletter. The column was uh, entitled, Textile Techniques from Around the World. And I think it was about three years into writing these articles, uh, the Warp board suggested that I uh, compile them and... Uh, turn them into a booklet that would be sold to the Warp members as a fundraiser. But as I wrote, I started editing the articles, it was clear that it was more than that. And um, my interest in the meantime had shifted from the the techniques themselves to the stories behind them about the people, the communities, uh, the traditions behind uh, the textiles and
1: um and the end result was the book
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, and so, how long did it take you to develop all that information for the book? Was it several years? How long did that take
2: well there was the well there was the initial uh information from the original articles, so I mean, those usually take me no more than a week, but when I wanted to expand and uh, rework them, oh, I don't know. It took about, uh, let's see, probably three, four years to, to get everything together. Part of the issue was that Shortly after that decision by the warp board was made, I suffered a severe brain injury. So there was a, a good chunk of time during, during which I didn't write at all. But, um, uh, what happened, one of the effects of the brain injury was, uh, pretty severe fatigue. And that really limits how much I can write, how much I can do on a daily basis. So it took me a good while, uh, several years, I have to say.
1: Well, and when you look back in your life, when was like the the point where you first became in, you know, like interested in textiles? Well,
2: I grew up with ethnic textiles around me well, actually, my love of textiles, of handmade, handmade textiles, started when I was about seven years old, when my mother taught me how to knit, and from then on, you know, in school I learned to embroider and and sew a uh, little bit of weaving, things like that. Um, and then, as an adult, I I learned some additional techniques, like uh, well, really went into weaving. Uh, uh, felting, uh, and such. But also as a child, as I said, I was surrounded by ethnic textiles. We, we moved to Israel when I was six and we used to visit the nearby Druze village and buy various, um, ethnic crafts, including textiles. And we also visited, uh, Jerusalem, periodically, we always stopped by the old city, the Arab quarter, where uh, the ethnic te- textiles were just all over the place. So I was, and also my father uh, traveled a lot, and he'd bring back gifts, like saris from India, um, an embroidered uh, apron from Hungary. So it was, you know,
1: it was just part of my childhood, yeah, it's all part of, um, I'm sure, having that all around really develops that interest. And I love how you bring that together in threads around the world because people who don't have the same, let's say they haven't traveled as much, they really get a sense for what different communities, um, how textiles just interwoven and in all that.
2: Yeah, very much so. And that's a, a big part of the mes- message. Um, that not only does do these textile traditions connect past to present, but they also connect us through the stories and, you know, textiles themselves. I mean, the text, textiles have been uh, an important aspect of humanity from the beginning.
1: Well, and since you touched on that, I'd love for you to share with our audience, you know, why is textile art important for our global community?
2: Well, as I said, the obvious part is connecting us to our roots in many ways and um, but the other part is textiles are universal and uh, so this is something we have in common with uh, humanity in in general but uh, also the stories behind the textiles are in many ways they show us that that we're connected with each other. Uh there's no them. There's only us. You know, there's no us and them. there's only us. And uh you know, you you talk you talk to artisans around the world, you you listen to their stories and in my case I write the stories and we have a lot in common, no matter what.
1: Yeah, there, there really is a lot. Well, when we look at the relationship of textile and traditions, you know, they have this grassroots economy kind of, you know, um, connection. And so, how does that? When we look at that from a global perspective, how does textiles help different communities?
2: Well, okay. The, part of the thing is that. Since the Cultural Revolution, it's been harder and harder for uh, textile artisans uh, um, to earn a living through their through their um, textiles. Um, you know, if you just go to China or India, there are very cheap knockoffs, uh, which are, if you compare them to the handmade stuff, there is no comparison. But, without educating the public um, there's no chance of of uh helping there's no chance of uh for these artisans to earn a living and when in in fact if you know if you have these for instance, in India, there are people who this is what they know, and the and to help them improve their quality of life, you have to educate the public. And once you do that and you teach them techniques to uh, make them more marketable in the Western world um, and uh, make them more cost-effective, it becomes more profitable and uh I mean, we we see the results. I mean, you, you, um, entire communities, it's really changed what's going on. In particular, it's made education more accessible to them. I mean, there are plenty of countries where education is not free. Uh, for instance, in Guatemala, if you don't have money, your kids aren't going to go to school. So it's really made a difference,
1: well, and so when we look at um, how textile, it sounds like there's a resurgence of textile and those traditions coming back into the community after you know after having some of this training done, where people are being able to really understand how to make it more cost effective.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's no. I mean, there's absolutely no question. Um, part of the issue of helping them become more marketable is also helping them create a niche in the western market and again there comes education and various outlets like uh you know there's there's in this area there's 10,000 villages uh also for instance in the the um i think it's the the baskets from, I believe, Botswana became very, um, very um, common. Well, not common. Uh, became available in department stores. Uh, patterns are. People are more aware of the patterns. I think it, it is a lot. A lot of it is to do with educating the public, but also the. I don't know, ex-hippies, things like that, or eternal hippies, who've always been interested in that side of things and interested in helping um, textile art, well, any kind of artisans in need. So it's, as you said, there's been a resurgence. Also, if you walk into places like Walmart, they have the cheap knockoffs. But it, even though, it takes away from the the ability of artisans to earn a decent living. On the other hand, it raises awareness. It becomes part of the fashion, that kind of thing. So it it it's almost happened organically.
1: Mm-hmm. What are some? I, I know in your book you have it listed pretty much by, you know, different countries and what their textiles look. What's some of the differences that really stand out for you?
2: Um, well, actually, the interesting thing is there are a lot of commonalities that really surprise me. Uh, but differences are often in the technique themselves. The overall technique might be similar. But depending on what materials are accessible... There are going to be differences in the process also um, a lot of the a lot of the in in the patterns a lot of the motifs are um, stylized versions of for instance uh, animals, and those are different from place to place. but the thing I found really striking was well first of all the traditions the the folklore behind the patterns and the techniques are, are on the one hand similar you know creation um, things like that but on the other hand there are different versions of that the one that i found really interesting was um berber rugs in morocco that not only are there is is are the finished products do the finished products carry symbolism, but the actual process of weaving um, is symbolic of the life cycle of male children. Uh, well, male sons, well, most sons are male. Um, for instance, when you start setting up the loom, that's analogous to the birth of the child. Um, when you start, pre- uh, prepping, prepping it for the weaving, that is a child going through, um, chi- well, childhood within the women's sphere. And when you start the actual weaving and you go through the weaving, that is, um, symbolizes the life of the son through adulthood, and when you cut the textile off the loom, that is analogous to the death of the child or son. And that really surprised me. The idea that you, um, I can't think of the word, that, that you associate having a finished textile with death really bothered me. So I really look, I, I looked into it further. Uh, the Berber Muslims so I wanted to know more about. You know, do they have a, do they believe in an afterlife? That kind of thing. And I was thrilled and surprised to learn that there is an afterlife. And when and and when the textile goes into its new home, it there's a rebirth and it has a new life there. The other thing that I found interesting was that at the death of the textile, when you finish a textile, they perform last rites as they would do this to a person who died. It was, it was, you know, a fabulous discovery. Um, in Bhutan, the idea that, um, textiles are still very much a part of society part of you know when you people go through some sort of uh, uh, important uh, event in life for instance uh, marriage uh, birth uh, a promotion people you know, they have their celebration and and the attendees produce a gift for the hosts and the gift is a gift of textiles that's part of it's very much part of life, and it's still used for bartering not quite as much as it was, but it's still very much of what's you know what's important in in their lives so there's a lot of little things like that 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 uh I really enjoyed learning about this kind of stuff, and also the, the things like um place of women in the various communities. Uh, In some, they have, it's very clear, women versus men. In others, uh, the women have, the women have um, equal, uh, equal uh, status. I mean, back to Bhutan, the thing that I found that was interesting was that women are in charge of everything to do with the home, which doesn't sound so great, but also the the thing that I thought was incredible, well, not incredible, surprising, was when it comes to the home, it goes from mother to daughter. The men are more, in, 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 in you know, men don't have, you know, cannot own or do not own property. Women do.
1: Hmm. Well, that's really fascinating, and you know, I know that you also mentioned that there's a lot of similarities that surprised you. What are some of those?
2: Well, in the patterns and the motifs, uh, there are, for instance, uh, let's see, in Laos, in the the pattern in the weaving is very much about uh, Naga, which is the, uh, the serpent, which is the um, Which is uh, uh, very—it's an integral part of the beliefs. Uh, And when you go to Peru, amongst the Shipibo, they have very similar um, patterning. In very—I mean, in, in the in the in Laos, it's in the weaving. In Shipibo, amongst the Shipibo, it's in cross stitch and fabric painting, but we're back to the whole serpent thing, which is very central to their beliefs. That was one example which I found uh quite surprising. And then, in general, a lot of the, the smaller motifs, like, for instance, um, ram's horns, very prevalent amongst the Mongolian uh, felters, and also in various other societies, I can't really think of, of, uh, I can't think of one right now. Uh, let's see, what else? I mean, a, a lot of the motif issues are, oh yes, when it comes to fertility, symbols for fertility are, are very similar across a lot of cultures. It it was it was quite fascinating.
1: Yeah, it must have been going through and, and looking at all the similarities that kind of just come together. Well, and so how does textile art I know we shared a little bit about it, but how does it tell like the cultural stories and broadcast our humanity?
2: Well, I think first of all there's the it it textiles in general, um have stories are very much part of uh textile uh, traditional textiles or handmade textiles and when it comes to clearly when it when it comes to the traditions, there are a lot of similarities in what um the meaning behind things are as i said there's there's symbols like for fertility and uh uh good fortune uh, wealth, uh, things like that, but also the story there're also the stories of the artisans themselves, the struggles they go through, uh, their lifestyles. What impact their lives have on the textiles that they make these stories are very much universal they 're people too you know go through similar struggles, some of it you know financial uh, familial things like that um, and and you you see this and it and uh, you know you could relate to it uh, on on the one hand, for instance, traditional attire marks well, honors particular cultures and marks our differences. But on the other hand, if you look deeper into the stories, you're back to the universal. And very much when it comes to humanity, it's very much a a combination of individuality and similarities. And textiles really um, exhibit that.
0: Well, on that note, we're going to pause here for a quick break. We've been speaking with Deb Brandon in regards to her two books, Threads Around the World, and But My Brain Had Other Ideas. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. We'll be right back after these messages.
3: internationally recognized and award-winning author judy goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking working with people from every walk of life her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be no matter what the challenge is born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge teaching beyond conventional wisdom her work is described as life-changing visit judygoodman.com that's judygoodman.com There comes a moment when you realize you're somewhere special, when you discover that each beautiful creature that you see has been rescued from a life of absolute horror and brought to this incredibly free place. Here's where their lives were forever changed and where yours will as well. Discover over 500 tigers, bears, and lions at the brand new Visitor Center at the Wild Animal Sanctuary just outside Denver. For more information, visit wildanimalsanctuary.org. Discover true freedom at the Wild Animal Sanctuary. Have you ever had the sense that your thoughts might actually be doing something? Ancient secrets of manifesting have been masterfully revealed in the award-winning book, Manifesting 123, by Ken Elliott. For the first time, the author's experiences and stories in this book describe exactly how your thoughts can create anything. You've been doing this all your life, but it's never been fully explained for you until now. Visit manifesting123.com for more information today. Manifesting
2: There are nearly 2 million Americans living with amputation. Many live right here in San Antonio. Becoming an amputee can be scary, frustrating, isolating, but there's no reason to feel alone. The San Antonio Amputee Foundation is here to help support you and guide you toward resources such as home and car modifications and even prosthetic limbs. For more information or to make a donation, visit saamputee.org. We'll help you live a full, active life one step at a time. San Antonio Amputee Foundation, healing limbs, hearts, and souls.
0: Welcome back to Moments with Marianne. We're here today with special guest, Deb Brandon, and she's sharing with us her two books, Threads Around the World and But My Brain Had Other Ideas. Now, before we went for break, we were talking about textiles, and one of the things that came to mind, I'm just curious, what are some of the textile traditions that are still being used today?
2: Oh, God, many of them. Everything that is in the book is... They're still being used. Some of them continuously, continue through time. Others have been revived. Uh, let's see. Backstrap weaving in, oh, here's another one that's common to many places. Backstrap weaving, that's a kind of weaving where you have the stationary loom and, well, not necessarily stationary, the main part of the loom and then uh, the weaver is connected to the loom and by leaning forward and back against the strap creates tension on the warp. Those things, th- those kind of looms, backstrap looms, no matter what the frame looks like, they're common all over the place. South America, um, Asia, it's, it's, you know, the, the, when you look at uh, Japan versus, uh, oh, let's see. God, I can't think of them right. But they're, as I said, they're all they're across the globe. They use the same thing. Um, so, so as I said, backstrap weaving in, in Guatemala and Peru have been ongoing since, God knows, when they first started. Um, Spinning yarn, uh, again, in many places, is still ongoing, um, has been ongoing in Africa, South America, uh, some places in in uh, Asia. Uh, now, there are things that have, t- particular techniques that have been revived. Or, in Europe, you'll see things that act... Came close to dying out, but have been revived. So, but it's mostly the actual techniques, the the particular, um, you know, it's in the details. But the overall thing has been ongoing. I mean, for instance, in Peru, um, there's a particular technique that uh, essentially died out. No one was practicing it and then this one woman um uh Nilda Alvarez she found a piece of an an antique piece of uh textile using this method and she found a couple of grandmothers who remembered something in their childhood somebody was doing something similar So she managed to figure it out with their help and uh, it's now been revived. So there's a lot of... uh, In uh, Italy, in uh, Perugia, there's a particular... There's a particular weaving technique that was uh, again dying out and there's a woman whose, I believe it was her great grandmother started reviving it and, uh, you know, she, she started a school to teach the younger generation how to, um, weave these textiles. And, you know, this school went from, from mother to daughter to this day. There's a woman who teaches, uh, you know, young women how to how to weave these textiles. It's, it's pretty incredible what people are doing. I mean, when you think back, it's not just today that people are trying to revive these, uh these traditions that it's, it's actually, uh, there have been women who've been, you know, started in the early 1900s, late, late 1800s, that kind of thing. So it, so there's a lot that, as I said, there's a lot that's going on most, you know, some have been revived. Other, others have been ongoing.
1: Mm. Well, your book "Threads Around the World" really shares so much. I mean, it's such a great read. Beautiful pictures throughout it, so people really get a sense almost that they're right there with the people who are who are creating the textiles or doing the weaving. So it's it's very just. Uh, a great resource. You also have another book that you've written, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about that for us.
2: Um, I mentioned that uh, I suffered a brain injury. I have uh, clusters of malformed blood vessels in my brain. They're called cavernous angiomas. I have, I, I forget how many I have, ten or so, and um, two of them bled which wreaked havoc on my life. I had seizures and horrendous headaches. My balance was gone. I, um, I had cognitive issues. I couldn't be the mother I used to be. I couldn't uh, drive. I couldn't work. And um, I basically lost my independence. The only way to prevent future bleeds is to remove these things surgically. So I underwent three brain surgeries um and i wrote a memoir about my recovery from the brain injury P- uh, first at first i wrote it um, i had trouble i had trouble finding this was back in 2007 i had tri- trouble finding information anecdotes about living with brain injury and i felt very lost coming out of hospital because it's you don't Quite fit inside yourself. I mean, you—you everything feels wrong. Your waves of thinking—you can't. I mean, um, I—I—I lost—I—I my ability to think sequentially was damaged. So I had to learn to think around that, and 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 you know. So I learned to different think, learned different thinking styles. So even just from that point of view. Also you've gone through a life changing experience, and I needed to understand what had happened and I needed to understand to navigate this new world and to to I wanted to reclaim my space, my p- space in the world uh, my place in the world and um, so since I couldn't find anything that um, that satisfied that need, I decided to write something myself. And bumble along uh following my nose, uh keeping track of what's going on in the hopes that I'll figure it out, so that was one reason I started writing it. The other reason was I figured, well, if I can't you know if I'm having trouble along the journey, um other brain injury survivors would too, and I hoped that by writing my own story, it would help others. Um, as time went on, so I was writing a journal type thing. As time went on, I realized that there 's a lot of ignorance about um, brain injury, including among brain injury survivors themselves. Uh, the thing is there's a lot of there 's a lot of stuff that goes on that you don't associate with a brain injury. you think you 're being inadequate you 're not dealing with things appropriately, for instance, depression. Depression is huge among brain injury survivors, and you know you think at first, well, you know it's situational, it makes sense. I went through this trauma, and why why am I not getting over it? You know this kind of thing um, and in my case i it took me you know i I was going having ups and downs uh emotionally, and I thought it was situational, and then I became. Suicidal a few times, and that's when I realized, wait, maybe it's more than that. And I ended up going to see a psychiatrist um, to, um, you know, so she could um, prescribe meds for me. Um, and there are a lot of things like organizational organizational skills go out the window. Um, well, everyone ex- expects memory loss that that's easy to figure out there's a lot of things that as a brain injury survivor you don't associate with a brain injury and I felt like I was being inadequate I wasn't trying hard enough Um, there's there's something called you know having trouble with task initiation which is very similar to procrastination or the end result is very similar to uh, procrastination but um, but the mechanism is very different Um, Procrastination, at some level, you know you're gonna get to it. Task initiation, you know you're gonna get to it, but you can't. There's, it's almost as though there's a block stopping you from, you know, crossing the river and getting to the other side. There's something, a physical something that's blocking you from doing it. And, but you know that you're gonna do it. So it's not an issue, but you can't do it. And again, as a brain injury survivor, many of us think, oh, we, we're procrastinating. So again, it's back to handling things inadequately. Um, sensory overload, having trouble processing uh, sensory input. If I have to deal with large volumes of sensory input, like in crowds, at parties, things like that, uh, bright lights... I freeze. I get traffic jams in my neural pathways and I often panic and I'll stand there sometimes having a major meltdown. I thought I was going crazy. I mean, there's this complete and utter chaos in my mind. I don't understand what's going on. I'm bawling my eyes out. I I started thinking that that there was something very wrong with me. And until I learned that this was... A legitimate symptom. I was afraid that I was losing my sanity. Um, so, as I said, I thought, you know, I thought that by writing it would help other people both understand what's going on for themselves and for other brain injury survivors that they come uh, in touch with. And because I wanted to reach a broader audience, as I as I continued writing, I felt that I needed to improve my writing skills. Because of my brain injury, I couldn't attend workshops and classes, so I found a writing coach, and she was really fabulous, and she transformed me from an eh journal writer into an author of a book I'm very proud of. Um, writing it was hard at times. Um, which is how I learned that I had some PTSD-type issues. Um, For instance, figuring out that I'd actually been suicidal. I mean, you think, oh, no, yeah, no, I just had some thoughts about it. I would never do it. And then you start writing about it, and you're you know, digging deeper, and it was a shock to my system to find out that, yes, I did have it into me. And I did have it in me. Um, that was a major one um there various other pieces that I tear up when I think of them, for instance, uh the time i writing about the time some of the incidents that happened in inpatient rehab right after right after the surgeries was really tough, for instance, I couldn't read, not that I lost the the ability to to deal with the mechanism of reading my it was that my between my very short attention span and poor memory i couldn't put words together into a sentence let alone into paragraphs So i couldn't understand what i was reading um i'll never forget the time when the occupational therapist she asked me to read a paragraph and I was very proud that I could read it, that, that yes, I can read. And then she asked me, what was it about? I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. So then she narrowed it down to a sentence. Okay, what's this about? Again, I had absolutely no idea and I was terrified because I used to be an avid reader and I was afraid I lost that. I, I was I I was terrified and devastated. I regained that ability, but because of issues akin to learning disability, to dyslexia-type things, I had trouble reading uh, books like I used to read. Um, There was too much information on the page, and the, the print was too small. And I didn't realize what the problem was. I just knew that I, at one point I realized that it was the print was too small and I made the connection that I was doing fine with children's books and some young adult books, but I couldn't handle anything more advanced than that. So when I finally made the connection, I went and bought large print versions. But, I couldn't read those either because there was too much information on the page. So when I started writing about it, I sort of, I started choking up. And I, I finally learned to, that I needed an e-reader. And with an e-reader, I'm back to being an avid reader. But just the thought and just rem- rem- re- remembering that devastation, that was really tough. To
1: write about, it has to be. It really has to be because I, I, you know, I have a friend that went through a traumatic brain injury, and there's a lot that needs to be, you know, considered. PTSD is one of the things that a lot of people who go through traumatic brain injuries that they that they suffer from, and it's you know, I think it was so good that you wrote a book on this. What is the title of that book? but my brain
2: had other ideas a memoir of recovery from brain injury
1: well deb where can people contact you and be part of your community and learn more about threads around the world and your second book there
2: uh the simplest the well the easiest uh way would be through my um through my website um which is DebBrandon.com, so that's D-E-B-B-R-A-N-D-O-N.com, and there's, there's a way to con- contact me through that. I also have a, uh, Deb Brandon author page on, uh, Facebook, and again, that's another way to contact me. Um I am really happy to talk to people about anything Including the rough stuff with brain injury, the horrendous issues I occasionally have now with um with depression, one thing i mean yes, there were a lot of losses through the brain injury, but there were also a lot of gains as i said i had I have trouble uh processing large volumes of sensory input because stuff comes at me with similar impact uh you know if you have conversations around you even if one is closer to you you can't focus on it because all the conversations around you are coming in at the same level but at the same time this has helped me identify details in nature for instance that i was unaware of um you know a dew drop on a on a leaf uh, I remember my son, when he was a toddler, discovering snow for the first time. I remember him poking his finger into a snowbank and then w- looking at the fingertip and watching it, me- uh, watching uh, the snowflake melt. And I found myself doing the same thing. Uh, it, I'm much better at reading social cues. Um, having uh, had to take a crash course in asking for help, I had to expose my vulnerabilities. And I learned that by exposing my weaknesses, I was actually turning them into strengths because when you expose your vulnerabilities, people feel more comfortable opening up to you. So I became much more socially adept. I mean, I used to be very much an introvert and here I was becoming an extrovert. And um, I feel very strongly that... Telling one's story is really crucial to, back to humanity in general. And um, so, you know, I open my mouth and out it comes. So, and, and for brain injury survivors, I know how rough it is and I'm very happy to share my story and what I know about it. I learned a lot by writing about it. So I'm, I'm happy, I, you know, I hope people will feel comfortable contacting me. I made, I made, uh, uh, connections through Facebook, through my, and through my website with people. And, uh, I've contacted them, you know, via email, uh, through the phone. I mean, I'm really happy to do that. And there have been people that have been in such bad shape, you know, with, with, uh, depression that I've given them my phone number and said, you know, you can call me any time. You know, even in the middle of the night, this is something that I feel very strongly about, that we need the support, all the support we can get, and I'm happy to do that, as long as they don't do it regularly, waking me up in the middle of the night. But um, I I really, I, I definitely feel comfortable talking about it. I love giving talks about it, because then again, after the talk, people... Well, I love giving talks in general, but after talk, people will come to me and talk to me about their own issues or uh, a friend who's had uh brain injury and they, you know, it explains various things about what's happening to that person. I had a father of uh brain injury survivor who just went, you know, that I helped him become a better father to a brain injury survivor because he now understood what, for instance, what sensory overload is. I mean, this is a kid who's, um, he had uh, several brain brain surgeries when he was a baby. So he grew up with issues like sensory overload and he didn't know how to explain it because, you know, this was part of his life. And his father saw him getting that blank look and getting upset and he just didn't know what it was, and now that he understands, he knows how to help him uh, to get him out of the situation, to help him through it, that kind of thing. And it's and there are commonalities. I mean, for instance, um, people who have autism have issues with sensory overload. I mean, they're you know, it's not just people with brain injury survivors and the issue of life-changing experience, uh, depression due to trauma, things like that. So there are a lot of commonalities and I get a lot of people who will tell me that it really helped them um, deal with some of these issues even though they weren't brain injury survivors.
1: Well, you know, Deb, gosh, we could talk for hours. You're such a wealth of information when it comes to not just when we talk about textiles, but also helping people that have had traumatic brain injuries and kind of offering support and guidance for those folks. You know, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be on the show with us here today.
0: Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Deb. It has been such an honor to spend this time with you, and of course, to talk about your two books, Threads Around the World, and But My Brain Had Other Ideas. Again, if you'd like to connect with Deb, you can at her website, debbrandon.com, and we'll have the link below. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You're listening to Moments with Marianne, And remember, make every moment count.
3: a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary a recognized leader in her own work, and while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Mary Ann will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Mary Ann airs every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmaryann.com for more information.